the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. City. WLCC Brandon. Faith Talk Tampa. Online at letstalkfaith.com. Or listen on TuneIn and Odyssey. The following is sponsored by Verse by Verse Ministries and is pre-recorded. Why do the righteous suffer? We spoke last week about trials in general, why a Christian has trials. But why do the righteous, why do obedient Christians have to suffer? That's something that has probably plagued you. It has plagued scores of people. The book of Job is perhaps the oldest in the Bible, and the whole theme addresses itself to that question. Why do the righteous have to suffer? Why do they have to have trials? The Old Testament prophets wondered why a righteous person should experience testings. The people Peter is writing to also wondered why were they going through such testings and trials and sufferings. Many people have asked that. It seems a perplexing question in light of the fact that we can understand why an unrighteous person suffers. I don't have difficulty when I see somebody getting what they ought to get. Haven't you seen it where you see somebody speeding down the road in their car and you just hope that there's a police officer around the corner? Don't you have that? I do. I hope deeply that they get caught. I don't have a problem with that. humans have a pretty good idea on who should pay for their misdeeds, such as speeding. However, we as Christ followers also tend to have the idea that we shouldn't suffer. It's interesting that we should think that way, even though the book of 1 Peter tells us to expect trials, and at times persecution. Now, My own theory as to why we as Christians don't think we should have trials is this. We were built for the Garden of Eden, or for eternity, if you will where, of course, for the Christian, there will be no more trials. However, we are not in eternity yet. With those thoughts, I welcome you to Verse by Verse, where our teacher, Pastor Steve Kreloff, is teaching out of First Peter. We have much to learn from the writing of the Apostle Peter, and I appreciate the way Pastor Steve has very thoroughly explained what Peter has written. So, without any further ado, let's get into today's program. I want you to turn your Bibles to 1 Peter, chapter 1, verses 10 through 13. We're continuing our study on this tremendous book, this book that gives us insight into suffering, something all of us can relate with, can't we? 1 Peter, chapter 1, verses 10 through 13. Peter says, as to this salvation, the salvation he's been talking about, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful search an inquiry, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you in these things which now 
have been announced to you through those who have preached or proclaimed the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Therefore, gird your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation or at the appearing of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Our Father, take the word now, expound it to us, and apply it by the Holy Spirit to each one of our lives. And I say that may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable unto you, our Lord and our God. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We start off tonight by asking a question. We have a very simple outline tonight. A question asked, a question answered, and a question applied. And the question that we ask is the question that has been an age-old question is, why do the righteous suffer? We spoke last week about trials in general, why a Christian has trials. But why do the righteous, why do obedient Christians have to suffer? That's something that has probably plagued you. It has plagued scores of people. The book of Job is perhaps the oldest in the Bible, and the whole theme addresses itself to that question. Why do the righteous have to suffer? Why do they have to have trials? The Old Testament prophets wondered why a righteous person should experience testings. The people Peter is writing to also wondered why were they going through such testings and trials and sufferings. Many people have asked that. It seems a perplexing question in light of the fact that we can understand why an unrighteous person suffers. I don't have difficulty when I see somebody getting what they ought to get. Haven't you seen it where you see somebody speeding down the road in their car and you just hope that there's a police officer around the corner? Don't you have that? I do. I hope deeply that they get caught. I don't have a problem with that. Or if you watch somebody really who deserves to get in trouble for something they've done. I don't have a problem with that. As a matter of fact, I usually rejoice in those things, and I think in my heart, good for them. They got it. They had it coming to them. But what about a person who it doesn't look like they had it coming to them? That's the question that troubles us at times. We don't have a problem when somebody ought to get what they should, because justice, we all have a sense of justice. And even the Bible says, whatsoever a man sows, he also reaps. We have that sense of justice. Look in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 19 and 20. Even Peter addresses this question in another chapter. He says, For this finds favor, if for the sake of conscience towards God, a man bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly. For what credit is, he says in verse 20, For what credit is there if, when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience? But if when you do what's right and suffer for it, you patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. But catch that phrase at the beginning, what credit is there? In other words, big deal. You ought to get it anyway. But what about suffering when from a human standpoint, you don't deserve to suffer? You've been obedient. You've been consistent. Not perfect, but consistent. Edith Schaefer has written a book called Affliction. And in it, she asks that question, why Do the righteous people suffer? And she gives an example. And before I read what she says, let me say the example she gives is John and Betty Stamm. Maybe that is a new name to most of you, but when I was a student at the Moody Bible Institute, I read a missions book called The Triumph of John and Betty Stamm. They were missionaries, young missionaries, 
who had trained at Moody in the mid-30s, gone off to China and laid down their life for the gospel's sake. And someone wrote a book about it called The Triumph of John and Betty Stam. Betty wrote this poem, and then I'll read to you what Edith Schaefer has to say about them. She says, afraid of what? To feel the Spirit's glad release, to pass from pain to perfect peace, the strife and strain of life to cease, afraid of that? Afraid of what? Afraid to see the Savior's face, to hear his welcome and to trace the glory gleam from wounds of grace, afraid of that? Afraid of what? A flash, a crash, a pierced heart, darkness, light, oh, heaven's art, a wound of his, a counterpart, afraid of that? Afraid of what? To do by death what life could not, baptize with blood a stony plot, till soul shall blossom from the spot, afraid of that. Edith Schaefer says John and Betty Stam had finished the years of preparation in college and Bible school. God had brought them together to complement each other in a work which seemed to lie before them for years in China, where they had learned the language and were prepared for an unusual service for the Lord. The first baby was in their arms as they were captured by a band of teenage communists in the mid-30s. How could it happen that Betty, who wrote this poem, the poem that we read, with such deep understanding, could be experiencing the reality of being led through the streets in her underwear along with her young husband, hands tied behind their backs, their baby was left behind in her snuggle bunny on the bed in the room where they had been in prison for the night. How could it be that this well-prepared missionary couple, with so many praying for them, could have their heads placed on a chopping block with a sharp knife at the back of their necks? So suddenly, they were absent from their bodies, their heads severed and rolling in the dust. How could it be that the old Chinese Christian so willingly offered to take the baby's place and placed his own head where the baby's head would otherwise have been. A life for a life, and two others snapped off. Martyrdom, how could it possibly be? Why? We all ask those questions at times, and yet we know the Lord is sovereign, and God has used their testimony in ways that he hasn't used ours. And that book is very famous. If you can get a copy of that, do so. The Triumph of John and Betty Stam. Peter's readers, like you and I, struggle with the subject of suffering. Why do we have to suffer? It's so hard. And as we said last week, don't you just feel like running away? This last week, I felt like running away. All of us do at times. All of us say in our flesh, I don't need this. I don't have to have this. All of us get like that. We suffer. Maybe it's family trials. Maybe it's your job. Maybe it's inner turmoil in your own heart. Maybe it's the people who are getting to you. Maybe it's responsibilities that have been put on you. I don't know what it is, but we know what it is to suffer. And we know what it's like to struggle with that. You wouldn't be here if you didn't struggle with that issue on suffering. What about obedient Christians? Let's back up and see where we are in our context. Peter has informed his readers that they have a salvation of hope. In the midst of dying, in the midst of death, in the midst of Nero's persecution and blood being shed like it has never before been shed for Christians, or at least up until that time, Peter reminds them that you have a salvation planned by God. God is sovereign. He's planned it. And we saw that in verses 1 and 2. We are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. It's planned. God's faithful. You'll get to glory because God planned it that way. Then he says it's a present salvation. 
He said, God has now caused us to be born again, verse 3, presently. It's not something we just look forward to, although that's true. It's something we possess right now. It's also a permanent salvation. It's one that's undefiled, uncorruptible, kept in heaven for us. But it's also a salvation that's protected because we're protected. We, verse 5, are protected by the power of God. We are guarded. You cannot lose your salvation. You're guarded. What God says he will accomplish, he will accomplish. Even though you may mess up your life, he that has begun a good work in you will continue performing it until the day of Jesus Christ. So it's a protected salvation. Then we said last week, verses 6 through 9, how to handle trials is what we entitled last week's sermon. We saw the reality of trials, that it's a very real thing, that some Christians believe that once you get saved, that's it. You're just going to have smooth sailing into heaven. I don't know anyone who has smooth sailing into heaven. If you have smooth sailing into heaven, you're dead. You're just not responsive to anything because nobody gets to sail into heaven smoothly because Christ is working in you and conforming you to his image. And that's not smooth sailing. Trials are a reality. Verse 6 told us about that. But what about the reasons for trials? We saw that in verse 7 about the proof of your faith. God has trials to prove that you're really his child. Because if you weren't, you'd walk away. And you'd say, I don't need this. And not only would you say it, but you'd walk away from the Lord. Remember about those people who had the seed sown on stony rock. It really didn't take root, but it sprung up and it was shallow. It really wasn't salvation. It was an emotional experience. So God sends us trials to prove to us, not to him. He knows that we're his children, but to confirm in our hearts that we really are his child. Not only that, but it purifies our faith. Just as that gold is purified by the goldsmith, so we need to have our faith purified. And God puts you under pressure because that's the only way he can conform you to his image. It's our responsibility to study the word of God, and as we gaze into the perfect law of liberty, we're changed into his likeness. But it's God's responsibility to send us trials. It's your responsibility to study the word, and God will change you by that. But it's his responsibility to send us trials and tribulations and testings to mix that in with the word of God and conform us and purify our faith. And then we saw the response of trials. Peter has taught us that we're not to shake our fist at God and say, I don't need this. I don't want this. I defy you. Though all of us at times battle that way. We are to respond who having not seen him, we love him. We're to respond in love. Those at that time had never seen him. They were also to respond believing, believing that he was in control, that he knows the end from the beginning and he knows your situation. We're to respond in faith and love and rejoicing towards Christ. That brings us up to where we are tonight. And quite frankly, when I read this passage of Scripture, 10 to 13, I wondered, where did this come from? You ever read Scripture and wonder, where did this pop out from? Why is this here? And I said, God, you've got to show me what this is for. Why is it here? What's Peter getting at? Because you always have to fit Scripture within its context. But it makes sense. God has a reason for every passage of Scripture in the Bible. The Word of God says all Scripture is profitable and given by the inspiration of God. What Peter is doing is he's attempting to show that it's necessary for an obedient Christian to suffer. And you know why we know it's necessary? Because Jesus Christ suffered and glory followed him. This passage really isn't dealing so much with the grace of God, although it mentions that in verse 10. 
It's dealing with what it says in verse 11. He predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. And in other words, what Peter is saying is, look, since Jesus Christ had to suffer and glory followed him, it's not going to be any different for you. You're no different. There's nobody, nobody more righteous than the Lord Jesus. He is the sinless and perfect son of God. And God's principle in his word is that you must suffer before you go to heaven. You must know a little bit about the cross and suffering before you have the crown. Heaven follows when we've had, or glory, it's another word, when we've suffered a little bit. And Jesus Christ is our example. He's that great example. And if you want to be glorified, and if you want to be like Jesus, you're going to have to suffer a little bit. Even Jesus didn't get out of that. Remember when he was at the garden at Gethsemane? How he prayed, and the Bible says he sweat like drops of blood. And he said, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Don't you think he was suffering? He had to go through that in order to be glorified. And you and I have to go through that. There is no easy road in the Christian's life. It's not simple. It's not a bed of roses. I said last week about that preacher who said the Christian life is fun. It is not always fun. And I reminded you last week, ask a mother who's lost her little child if the Christian life is fun. It's a relationship with Christ that is fulfilling and satisfying, but it is not always fun. And anyone who says that really hasn't had an intimate walk with the Lord Jesus. It is not always fun. You ask a believer who's been chastised by God if it's fun. It's not always fun. Peter gives in this text, as we start studying it at verse 10, gives a threefold emphasis on the lesson of suffering and glory. He says, first of all, the prophets prophesied it. He's going to teach us it had to happen, and I want to emphasize it to you. The prophets prophesied it, the Holy Spirit predicted it, and the apostles proclaimed it. From three different avenues, we see that it had to happen. It's inevitable that suffering has to be before glory. Look at verse 10, and we're going to move around. This was not an easy passage to really put into an outline form, and so we're going to be moving back and forth from verses, but it's not too many verses, so you can bear with us. As to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful search and inquiry. The prophets prophesied in the Old Testament of two major themes concerning Messiah. One, that he was to be a reigning king, and another, that he was to be a suffering person. The prophets didn't understand it. There had been two themes running throughout Scripture in the Old Testament concerning this. And in their minds, they could not reconcile the fact. How could Messiah be a reigning king and yet be suffering? It didn't make sense. Now, we want you to realize that though the prophets were the vessels that God used to speak the word of God, they didn't know everything that went on. But it was revealed to them that this was two themes. And the Bible says the prophets, so they prophesied of this, They made careful search and inquiry. Look at verse 11. Seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating. They wanted to know. They were curious about it. Let's turn your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 9. And stay there in Isaiah for a moment. We'll give you just an example of how it must have been perplexing to these prophets to have this truth and yet not understand it. Totally. Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6. And seven, for a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, 
mighty God, eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. Now that is a beautiful picture of a reigning king, right? But now you turn to Isaiah 53. Same prophet, same book, same spirit of God predicting within him, but a different picture. We're not going to read all of Isaiah 53. You should be familiar with it. But verses 7 and 8 will give us another picture. Now put yourself in Isaiah's shoes, or in his day and age, put yourself in his sandals. How was he to grasp this? He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that's led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that's silent before its shearers, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgression of my people, to whom the stroke was due, and then so forth. The whole context is dealing with not only, and by the way, if you study that, you'll see that the first part of Isaiah 53 is dealing with his life, not his death, but then it deals with his death. But the point is that Isaiah was perplexed. He didn't understand it. How could a reigning king and a suffering servant be the same person? The Jewish rabbis didn't understand it, and to this day, they still question that. And many rabbis have come up with the thought that there are two different messiahs because it seems so irreconcilable to have a reigning king and a suffering servant. You read Jewish history and you see how they interpret it, and they interpret, many of them, that you have two different messiahs. Can't be the same person. The prophets knew better than that. But they wanted to know, how does it work? I don't understand it. How could the righteous one be the suffering one? You see the question there? How could the righteous one, the king, also suffer? They asked that question, just as Peter's readers did, just as you and I have asked. But keep in mind, they didn't have, on a permanent basis, the Holy Spirit. The day of Pentecost, the Bible says the Holy Spirit came to indwell us. Up till that point, they only had the Spirit of God upon them at certain times and for certain reasons. And the Holy Spirit is the great illuminator. He's the one who takes the Word of God and opens it to us. The prophets didn't have that. They didn't understand it. And so it was perplexing. The greatest prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, David, Moses, none of them could figure it out. And I heard one man say that he believes, one pastor or one Bible teacher said, that he believes that when the contemporary prophets got together, all of them didn't live at the same time, but some of them did, when they got together, this is one of the things that they discussed. You can't prove that from Scripture. Sounds interesting, doesn't it? The prophets came together for a prophet's convention, so to speak, and discussed, what is this? I don't understand it. Now, let me apply this in your life. You don't have to understand everything in the Bible to proclaim it. The prophets didn't, and that was the major theme. Jesus Christ is the center of biblical revelation. They didn't understand it all, but they shared it. You don't need to understand everything. You don't need to be able to defend everything. It's a good thing if you can defend certain things, but... You don't have to concentrate on that. There's a place for that, but you just need to believe it and share it. D.L. Moody said that he studied the Bible like he ate fish. He said when he ate fish and he came across certain parts that had bones in it, he would just put it to the side, and he would go on eating the parts that weren't difficult. 
doesn't mean we don't share these things, but when we come to a part that we don't understand, we just for the time put it aside. We don't perplex our minds about it. We can search it out. We can think about it. But you don't fret over it. You just share it with others. Let God take care of that. It's his truth. You don't need to understand everything in order to share it. You don't need to feel as a witness for Christ. I can explain the gospel because I don't know how, if they ask me a question, I don't know how to answer it. If they ask the prophets a question, what are you talking about? They wouldn't know how to answer it at that point. You don't need to know all the answers. You need to share the truth. Study the word of God. God will give you answers in the right time, in the right place and situation, but you don't have to worry about it. I appreciated the way Pastor Steve wrapped up today's program with an encouragement to share the gospel. As he said, we don't have to be able to answer any question someone might ask, or all of them. We need to share the truth. Personally, I found that using scripture instead of my own words is much more effective. The Word of God is powerful to the pulling down of strongholds. Pastor Steve is the pastor of Lakeside Community Chapel in Clearwater, Florida, and he would love to have you visit sometime. If you do, please mention that you are a listener to this program. The folks at Lakeside would love to meet you. For more information, please surf over to lakesidechapel.com. And then if you can, join us next time for Verse by Verse as we continue to explore the book of First Peter. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.